Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Have you not known, have you not heard that the Savior Creator of the earth, he doesn't faint, he doesn't sleep, and he gives power to the weak. Father, we thank you that you care for us. We thank you that in our weakness and our infirmity, you lift us up, you renew us, you regenerate us, and our sinfulness and our lostness You sent your only begotten Son to come as light into the world so that we might have your saving grace and eternal life. And for this, we give you thanks to you who are God and our Redeemer. Amen. This land is your land. And this land is what? My land. From California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was what? Made for you and me. You know, that is often sung at patriotic services alongside, sometimes bookended with, God bless America. There's a bit of irony in that as we think about elections coming up here in a couple of weeks, because You know who wrote it, an Okie, not from Muskogee, but an Okie by the name of Woody Guthrie wrote it in 1940. In fact, Arlo Guthrie's dad was quite a social reformer. He was a radical. In fact, most of his life he promoted the cause of the Communist Party in America. There's a debate about whether or not he was actually a member. But he was a radical social reformer. He put these words to a song that was similar to a Baptist hymn of the day, Oh, My Loving Brother. You might expect that being from Oklahoma. Actually, the song was a critical response to God Bless America. Guthrie was tired of every time he turned the radio on in the 30s hearing Kate Smith sing God Bless America, which he thought was too sappy, blindly patriotic, out of touch with the depressions of the heart, the depression hardships. And he said, God isn't the answer. In fact, the original title of the song was God Blessed America for Me. That is the common person. God made it for us. The original had two verses that were critical of America. One of them was against private property. And the other was bemoaning the fact that America was mostly hungry and in poverty during the Depression. The fourth verse went this way. Was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. A sign was painted, said private property. But on the backside, it didn't say nothing. God blessed America for me. Other versions didn't talk about private property. They talked about no trespassing. 
The reason I refer to this song this morning is, is it raises some issues that we face in the election, just as many of the issues that we've talked about over the past six to seven weeks have addressed critical cultural issues in America today. These, I think, address two extremes, and this is often what we see. Marginalize two extremes that try to pull the American populace far to the left or far to the right. On the one side, there's radical socialism that emphasizes globalism. That is, this land belongs to everyone. Common ownership by all, there is no private property. The world, in fact, is a united comradeship without borders. Workers of the world unite. There's no nationhood per se. Borders are simply social contracts. They should be broken down and obliterated, erased, and there should be unrestricted immigration into every nation. This land's wealth belongs to everyone, and it should be redistributed even according, evenly according to everyone's needs. That's the one side which is, I think, extremely far left. There's another position that is extremely far to the right. It's a radical form of capitalism and nationalism that says property belongs only to those who have the power to purchase it. This land is committed to exclusive private ownership, usually in collusion with those that are powerful political allies known as crony capitalism. This position on the far right said our nation is specially privileged. It's the, capital T-H-E, land of opportunity and freedom, and it is for our, capital O-U-R, citizens alone. Our borders are to be impermeable, impenetrable. We are a closed community. We're doing just fine. We don't need anyone else. This land belongs to those who work hard and save, and the poor will always have among us. I think those are two radically extreme positions. You know, the last issue in both of those had to do with work and the poor, and we addressed those during the past two weeks. You'll remember that we said about work, God honors hard work, industry. Work is given to us as a responsibility to please God and to share with others. Work is given to us as a privilege to follow God's example and work alongside Him and to help others. Work is a matter of dignity. We're created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, and we are blessed in that image as we work with Him, and we affirm others' dignity in that workplace as well. Work is a, given to us to provide for our family and for ourselves, not just so that we can have provisions, but that we might feel safe enough then that we can help others without fear or worry or anxiety. Work is an opportunity to share with those in need. And this is a very biblical basis and reason for work. God honors work. Also addressing that, that last of those categories on the two extremes, what about the poor? We heard last week that God champions the cause of the poor and he expects us to love and to care for them. What I want to talk about today are the other three issues, the first three bullets on either side. And they have to do with property, private property, ownership, nationhood, and yes, a hot-button item, immigration.
In terms of property, I would say this. I believe the Bible says this land and its wealth is God's. This land and its wealth, all of it is God's. Secondly, related to nationhood, God does affirm nationhood in the scripture. And he affirms private stewardship. I'm not going to say ownership, but private stewardship of the land. Regarding immigration, I think it's obvious. God is the champion. God is the defender. God is the protector of immigrants. So let's take a look at those three points. What about this land? This land and its wealth are God's. The biblical principle is found throughout Scripture in the law, the writings, and the prophets. In the law in Deuteronomy, clearly it says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. In the writings, more than once, but especially in Psalm 24, you know it well, the earth is whose? It's the Lord's. And all that it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. In the writings, and the prophets, in Haggai, I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house, as Zechariah prayed this morning, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. For you see, the silver belongs to me, and the gold is mine. You see, this world, this land, this America is God's, and all that is in it. And in that context, you see what we are, we're really what? We're strangers. We're strangers in God's land, and God reminded Israel of this time and time again. Even though Israel was his chosen people, he reminded them of this fact. Abraham was a stranger, he said himself, and a sojourner among the Canaanites. And the author of Hebrews tells us clearly, by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. And he lived in a foreign land. He dwelt in tents with Isaac and Jacob, who were fellow heirs to the same promise. He was an alien in the land that God promised him. Jacob was a wandering Aramean through the female side. He had Aramean blood. And he sojourned in Egypt for a long time and increased in great number. Israel roamed as vagabonds from nation to nation. Chronicles tells us when they were only few in number, very few, they were strangers in the land. And they wandered from nation to nation and from kingdom to kingdom and from people to people. You see, they occupied a land that in fact was not theirs. It was given to them by God, but before he gave it to them, it was not theirs. Moses tells them, God told me to say to you, you're going to enter a land that God gives you to possess, and you're going to take splendid cities that you did not build. You're going to occupy houses filled with wonderful things that you did not fill. You are going to drink from water tanks that you did not dig. You are going to eat from vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. They were not yours. God gave them to you. You are a stranger. You are an alien in this land. Friends, I would suggest that everyone in this room this morning, in this sanctuary, is a child of immigrants to America. All of us 
came by way of immigration. European settlers, right after Columbus, the population of Europe was about 75 million. There were only two basic language families with about 40 to 70 languages in Europe. And they came to this land and they possessed it. Sometimes they bought it, like Roger Williams in Rhode Island, as the Dutch did in Manhattan. Often they took it, and more often they fought for it. There were already many people here. There are 10 million descendants today in America from the early Native Americans. The pre-Columbian population in America, we don't know exactly what it was, but scholars estimate between 9 and 18 million residents were here when the European settlers started coming, not just with two language families, 50 language families, not just 40 to 70 languages, somewhere between 300 and 500 languages. But you know what? They also were immigrants. They also had come here much, much, much earlier, probably about 15,000 years before, probably across a land bridge from Asia, maybe even from Europe. All of us are immigrants. All of us, in a way, are aliens in a strange land that God owns. You see, we're, I think, God's tenants. We saw this in Genesis 1. All humans are created to tend God's garden, to replenish the earth, and to be stewards of his resources, whether they are of European descent, South American descent, Asian descent, African descent, we all have the same task set before us. And the Lord delegates that tenancy. He delegates tenancy, but what he never relinquishes is ownership. It is always God's land. You know, God allowed private possession by the Israelites, private stewardship, and he even allowed them to exchange property after they possessed the land. But the Jubilee year in Leviticus 24 reminds us of a very important principle. Yes, the land reverted back to the original owners, human owners. If it had been exchanged, it went back to those that were the original tenants of the land. But then the scripture says there's a bigger principle behind this. It's not just that the original tenants got the land back. It underscored the fact that ultimately they even didn't own it. Leviticus 25, 23 says, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, says the Lord. For you see, you're aliens and you're sojourners with me. You know, when, in, when you're in, in England, if you buy a piece of property, it, it is bought in two phases, sometimes together. You, you can buy the building, but that doesn't mean that you own the land. In order to own the land or to take possession of the land, you must then pay a premium price to purchase the freehold. And the freehold lasts for a certain period of time, and when it expires, it, you see, goes back to the original holder. There's a parallel here in the, in the Scripture. God delegates the tenancy, but he always holds the freehold. He is always the holder. You know, the biblical view of property is much more radical than the left in America or the right in America. It's more radical than those that border on communism, and it's more radical than the crony capitalists. This land does not belong to me. 
This land is not your land. This land is not my land. This land is not everyone's land. This land belongs to God. And he holds us accountable as tenants in this land. That's very, very humbling. 500 years from now, I doubt that anyone will be able to find the deed of the property that we, quote, own at Starry Court are probably yours. Land, it's the Lord's. Secondly, God affirms nationhood and private stewardship. There should be boundaries and there should be rules of possession. And this is not contradictory to what I just said. In the Old Testament, there were national and tribal boundaries. God established Israel in Exodus, the 19th chapter, very clearly. In the 20th chapter, it says that he established Israel as a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, nationhood. He gave Israel the land and told them to possess it and then to divide it in Numbers 34. And then in Joshua 13 through 19, they did what? They assigned tribal boundaries and they drew the lines. And then in Numbers 26, before that, they were told that they were to divide those tribal lands by families according to size and by lot. And in fact, when land was exchanged, it had to be within the tribe. It was not allowed to be exchanged beyond the tribe. There were tribal and national boundaries. They're legitimate. There was also private stewardship in the Old Testament. Abraham, after Sarah died, bought land from the Canaanites to bury her, to, po- to possess that land. The Ten Commandments. The second time the Ten Commandments is given in Deuteronomy, we see in Deuteronomy 5. In the Tenth Commandment, not to covet. There, explicitly, it says, we're not to covet our neighbor's what? Field. His property. There were boundaries between families. Several times in the Scripture, they are exhorted not to move the boundary markers between the family's lands. The law protected family property. In the Jubilee, it reverted back to the original tenant. The leveret marriage of the brother of a deceased brother would marry his sister-in-law. Why? To keep the property in the family. The kinsman redeemer, Boaz, who redeems the land for Ruth, did so to keep the land and the family. In the Old Testament, there were boundaries. There was nationhood, and there was also individual stewardship. In the New Testament, it it supports the idea of nationhood and civil authority. You know, Paul, uh, in in Acts, rather, it says when Paul is standing on uh, the Areopagus there in Athens, he looks at the philosophers and he said, you see, it's God who establishes the nations. It is God who guides the nations. Jesus said, of course, render to Caesar. We're to obey the authorities, Paul tells us in Romans 13 and to Titus. Peter also says the same thing in the first letter that we read before we started worship this morning. We're to pay taxes that are due in Romans 13. We're to pray for our rulers in 1 Timothy 2. So there are authorities, there is nationhood, and we're to obey those authorities. There is private stewardship in the New Testament. Jesus spoke often of landowners. There was the man who owned the field, the landowner 
who had the field with wheat and tares in it. There's the man who discovers the treasure in the field, and he goes and he does what? He purchases the field. There is the man who hires the early laborers and the late laborers and pays them the same thing on, in the vineyard that he owns. And there was the owner of the vineyard who had the tenants that were to, supposed to, to farm the land and to harvest the grapes for him and to manage it properly. Land ownership was a New Testament principle. In the early church, Barnabas owned land and he sold part of it then to give to the church. And then Peter turns to Ananias and said, you know, you own the land and you had the right to do with it what you wished. You just didn't follow through with what you promised. So the idea of nationhood and boundaries and private stewardship is in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think the purpose for it is that nations God created in order to bring together like-minded people, to bless those people in the nation, and then to bless other nations, to establish authority so that it would regulate, the authorities would regulate good order, discipline, justice, and peace. I think the purposes of private stewardship in the scripture are to maximize efficiency for replenishing the earth, which he says to do in Genesis 1 to produce the benefits of individual work, which we have talked about at the beginning of this message in the last two weeks, to multiply many times the production and to produce a surplus so that we can take care of those that cannot work for themselves. There are purposes for these things. But here's a difference. God's ideal for nationhood is not exactly what we typically think. You see, there was a second fall, and we know about that because we've been going through it on Sunday evening. We came about three weeks ago to the second fall. It was Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. And we know what happened. Man thought that he could ascend into heaven and to pierce the heavens and to dethrone God and make himself sovereign. And what did God do? He scattered the nations. And nations were identified then by bloodline and descendancy. That is Genesis 11. And then what happened? In Genesis 12, God set about then his redemptive purpose for the nations to proclaim what nations were truly to be. He chose one nation to reverse the curse of Babel, to reunify all nations under his godship through Abraham so that through him all nations would be blessed and come back to him. God defined nationhood differently. It wasn't through bloodline descendancy. It wasn't through tribal descendancy. It wasn't genetic. It was by what? What did he do then in Genesis, the 17th chapter? He established a what with Abraham? A covenant. You see, nationhood is based on, God's nationhood is based on covenant, not bloodline. Stop and think about it. Abraham was commanded in that chapter to circumcise himself and his family. And what did he do? He circumcised himself. And at that time, Isaac had not been born. He, he circumcised Ishmael. But then he also circumcised all of his household servants, the males. And most of them, probably all of them, were not bloodline related to Abraham. You go back and look at Genesis 14th chapter. He had 318 male servants that were in his army. And he circumcised all them. Most of the folks that Abraham circumcised and brought into his nationhood at the beginning were not blood relatives. You see what this says is anyone 
who believes and follows God can be a part of God's nation, a descendant of Abraham. Based on his pre-circumcision faith, Paul tells us in Romans, the fourth chapter, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also follow follow in steps of faith our father Abraham while they are not circumcised. It's not a matter of being a bloodline descendant of Abraham. And in fact, it's not really ultimately a matter of being circumcised. It's a matter of what? Faith and following God. You see, God welcomed everyone regardless of nationality or race. God is no respecter of persons. He cares, the Old Testament tells us in Deuteronomy. He cares, he gives justice, and he loves the orphan, the widow, and the alien alike. In Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphans. He executes justice for the widows. And he shows love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. What this means, friends, to me is on the second principle about nationhood and, and, and possession and ownership and God's view of it is God welcomed anyone to come into the nation of Israel because it was the land of freedom and opportunity. Freedom from being an alien in a distant land and in bondage in Egypt and the land of milk and honey, which was the land of opportunity. And I believe that that is God's plan for every nation on earth today not just America. He would that every nation would be like that, a godly nation to provide freedom for all and opportunity for anyone, regardless of race, regardless of national background. Without bias, God is not a respecter of persons, but that doesn't mean that he's against nations. He established them for that purpose. And then we come to the last point. I think clearly in Scripture, God is the champion of immigrants. Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she, with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door course you know where that is it's at Ellis Island it was written by Emma Lazarus in 1883 it's part of a sonnet that she wrote to help raise money to build the base for the Statue of Liberty and the plaque is inside that base today you can see it on the wall Ellis Island during its peak years from 1892 to 1924 there were about 12 million immigrants that came into America during that period by 1910 75 percent of the citizens of New York and Chicago and Detroit and Cleveland and Boston were immigrants or their children. And today there are over 100 million Americans that can trace their ancestry to those immigrants that came through Ellis Island. 
You see, that principle that it proclaims in there, I think, is biblical. What is God's attitude toward aliens? He is their strong defender. The Lord protects the aliens, the psalmist says in Psalm 147. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. And he commands Israel regarding immigrants. Love them. Love the alien. Respect the stranger, the sojourner, and treat them as kinfolk. In Leviticus, when an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as a native among you, and you you shall love him as yourself. For you see, you too, you also were aliens in Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. He commands Israel to provide for them, as we heard a couple of weeks ago from the gleanings of the harvest field. He tells them, don't mistreat an alien in any way. Do not oppress them. Even if they're your servants, do not oppress a stranger or an alien. Do not deprive them of justice. It is their right too. And everyone in Israel lived under the same law, native Israelite and stranger, sojourner, alien alike. There were some restrictions. It didn't mean that everybody that came into Israel had all of the same privileges. There were certain privileges that went with citizenship. If one was not in the covenant community, if they had not been circumcised, and some aliens had, but if not, if they were, quote, strangers still, they were limited in their privileges. And that's important for us to understand, I think, about immigration. They couldn't enter the temple. They could not participate in the cultic activities like the Passover celebration. They could be charged interest, unlike Israelites that could not be charged interest on loans. They could not become king. That's pretty obvious. They could not possess female Jewish slaves. There were restrictions on those that were truly strangers that that abided by the law. But for those aliens that came in and joined the covenant community fully, that were circumcised residents or their families, they were allowed full access. You know, when we think about that, there were a lot of contributions that were made by aliens to Israel's history. And you know, Rahab, she rescued the spies. And possibly, if we're reading Matthew, I think the right way, she was an ancestor of David. Ruth, we spoke about last week, the Moabitess, great-grandmother of David. David's 30 mighty men included at least three aliens, Zelik the Ammonite, Ithma the Moabite. Do you remember reading about those? I know there's one you know, Uriah the what? The Hittite. Ittai the Gittite was a Philistine. He came from Gath. And you know, when David was fleeing Jerusalem, when his son Absalom was pursuing him, and most of the mighty men had abandoned David, Ittai the Gittite, who was a Philistine, stayed by his side. He was loyal. And David said, go back home. You don't need to follow me. Too dangerous. You're putting your life at risk. And Ittai pledged his loyalty to David. He was an alien. In the time of Solomon, there were 153,600 aliens in the land of Israel. And the temple would not have been built without them. Solomon used them not only to build the temple, but to supervise its construction.
construction. You see, aliens contributed positively to the life of Israel. I think there are two practical reasons why we should support and encourage aliens in our midst. One is that they contribute to our well-being and our livelihood as a nation. Today, we would have a lot less, a lot fewer electric cars if it weren't for Elon Musk, who came from South Africa. We would not have Google, at least starting in this nation, if it weren't for Sergey Brin from Russia. YouTube, over which we are broadcasting today, we would not have without Steve Chen from Taiwan and Jawed Karim from East Germany. The Pulitzer Prize would not exist if Joseph hadn't come from Hungary. Ornithology would not be what it is today if John J. Audubon had not immigrated from France, having been born in Haiti. God bless America. White Christmas would not have been written if it hadn't been for Irving Buin Berlin, who'd come from Russia. Isn't that ironic? This land is your land. God bless America. We wouldn't be wearing jeans today if it weren't for Lube, that is Levi Strauss, who came from Germany. We wouldn't have alternating current if it weren't for Nikola Tesla from Croatia. We wouldn't have had U.S. Steel without Andrew Carnegie, who gave away most of his fortune, 90% of his fortune in his life. In today's terms, about $77 billion came from Scotland. And folks, we wouldn't have Conan the Barbarian. We wouldn't have the Terminator, who became a two-term governor for California. Talk about a land of opportunity. Wow. Came from Austria, and we're going to end with an Austrian hymn today. Medical professionals today. One in five pharmacists was born outside America. One in four dentists is an immigrant. Almost 30% of the physicians in America today are aliens residing among us. You see, they contribute to the well-being and the livelihood of America today as they have for generations past. I think secondly and finally, immigrants are essential. Immigrants are essential to the lifeblood of sustaining a stable population. We cannot do it only through the procreation of Americans alone. Population growth has been decreasing over the past few years in America. Since 2007, it has decreased. The population growth rate has decreased by 20%. The decade 2010 to 2020, we had had the second lowest decade of population growth in American history. The fertility rate to sustain a population, experts tell us, should be about, about 2.1 children per woman. I wonder where they come up with that 0.1. What is the current rate of fertility in this nation? It's 1.6, and it's been that way for six straight years. We need immigrants to help revitalize the population. Without immigrants, what will happen? There will continue to be a declining birth rate. It will lead to a smaller workforce. It will lead to a more aged population, fewer younger people, slower economic growth that strains Social Security and the health insurance programs, a greater tax burden on the people, and a greater debt for the generations to come. The kids that were born in 2007, if you're 15 years old today, you were born with a debt on your shoulder of $31,000.
But in 2020, if you were born two years ago, you're probably not understanding what I'm saying. But a two-year-old today, that debt has risen to almost $60,000. Friends, we need immigrants that will contribute to this land, not just in what they can do, but by bringing new life. Let me close with some applications from the New Testament about this. A few principles. There's a hospitality principle, of course, from Hebrews 13. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, to aliens. For by this, some of you have entertained angels unawares. There's the ministry principle from which we read, Carla read this morning in Matthew, the 25th chapter. I was hungry, and you did what? You fed me. I was thirsty, and you did what? You gave me to drink. I was an alien. I was a stranger. I was a foreigner. I was a sojourner, and you did what? You took me in. There's the impartiality principle, Acts 10. I most certainly understand, Peter said, now that God is not one who shows partiality, and he said this, of course, when Cornelius then was responding to the gospel. But you see, in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is welcomed by God. There's the fairness principle. A laborer, and I know that this is in the context of ministers in 1 Timothy, but there's a broader principle here. The laborer is worthy of his wages, of his hire. You know, friends, there are illegals amongst us, and I believe that we ought to pay them a fair wage. I know we get into debates about, you know, how we regulate that, and we, there's a great consternation about illegal immigration. But if they're in our midst and if we hire them, we should treat them fairly and not oppress them. You see, the problem is some of the people who complain the loudest about illegal immigration are the ones that take the most advantage of them for their profit, and that is wrong. There should be a fairness principle. The humility principle. Like Abraham, we are all aliens in a foreign land, and Peter exhorts us as aliens and strangers to abstain from worldly lust. We are still aliens in a foreign land. Two more principles. One is the inclusive outreaching principle. Jesus stands in the temple, and he looks at their trading on the temple floor. He takes a whip. He beats it against the tables. He runs them out of the temple, and he says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer? for all nations. And there's the end times principle. Oddly enough, even though I have said we are aliens and we're all strangers, we're all sojourners, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a Christ follower, you're no longer an alien. You're no longer a stranger. Paul says this to the Ephesians. You see, you're no longer aliens. You're no longer strangers. We're not the privileged ones anymore, the Jews. You belong to the what? Household of God. And we know this, that this is God's land, but it's not our home. For our citizenship is not here.
Our citizenship is there. Millennia from now, if the Lord has not returned, when we are singing for 10,000 years at the throne of God, I doubt seriously that we'll think about the mortgage or the deed or the property we have left behind. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.